And you are joining us today for the final section, the final part of our series on the Song of Songs. It's been quite a um, provocative series, isn't it? Yeah, I thought so. Um, if you've been a bit prudish, then it's been a bit of a tough one for you. And uh, I want to thank you for the, the grace and the openness with which you have received um, some challenging topics over these last few weeks. And uh, I have to admit that when I got to the very end of the last verse, which we'll come to towards the end of this talk this morning, um, I felt quite moved that of what the things um, that God has done and accomplished in our hearts over these past few weeks. So let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that our hearts would hear your voice. And I pray that we would connect, not just with a, a speaker at the front, but Lord, I pray we would connect with the lover of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. We have looked at this magnificent book, this wonderful song of love, and we have connected and understood that there are three different ways that we can interpret it, and that these three ways, they're all valid, and they all have um, sort of meaning, and they can, uh, every verse pretty much can be read through these three lenses. First of all, it's a, a love song between King Solomon and the young woman who's to become his wife. And we learn all sorts of lessons about how we conduct relationships in this world. And we can learn all sorts of wisdom from reading it in that way. Um, secondly, it's a love song between God and his people, the Israelites. And we can read many of the comments, uh, the historical nature of just how that journey has gone between God and his people. And then thirdly, we can read about it as a love song between Christ and his church. That's you and I, and the church is the collective worldwide church, denominations are irrelevant, um, locations around the world, worship styles are irrelevant, we're the one church together, but we are members of that one church, and so when we read it through that lens, it's also a word to us, a love song to us, a love song to you, and it's beautiful when we understand that. At the start of this series, we saw about this developing love relationship that was taking place between this young man and this young woman, and it was flourishing and developing, and we were given some insights into some of the things that that was provoking. So first of all, we read that she felt unlovely and unworthy, and we read in, um, in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, don't stare at me because I'm dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyards so I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. And she was feeling really undeserving of the affections and the love of God. And we've looked at how so often that relates to us, how we feel so undeserving and so unworthy and so vulnerable. And yet his love comes to us. And then just a few verses later, we read these words that are spoken over her. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful your eyes are like doves. And the young woman stated these words in Song of Songs chapter 2, verse 16. It says, my lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Notice just the subtle change. If we go forward five chapters, 
to chapter 7, verse 10. He says, I am my lover's, and he claims me as his own. There's a subtle difference there. First of all, you go back those five chapters, she's saying, my lover is mine, but now she's saying, I am my lover's. Sounds the same, but there's a nuance because she knows now that she's no longer this kicking against the feelings of undeserved love, but she is completely his. She's given herself, and she is delighted. As the young woman learns about the desire of the young man for her, she is changing. And that is what's meant to be the story of discipleship in our lives. Discipleship is not going to conferences or Bible studies and learning nice things that you try harder with. Discipleship is knowing the love of God in our life, immersing ourselves in the love of God, and allowing that to change us. Marriage has changed me. Do you know, I used to... um, I, I, so I've got married young, and uh, I, you know, been quite a, a mommy and daddy's boy. So I didn't learn much responsibility around the home, but there were times and things that I had to learn. I remember there was a crisis in our marriage. After probably about a year of marriage, we were both working full time, and and I remember coming home from work one day, and Nina was in tears. So what's the matter? And. Um, she said, I just can't do this anymore. I said, do what? And she said, I can't work full time and do everything around the home. Oh, no. Ah, oh, I can't believe that I've missed that. I've been so remiss of sharing my responsibilities. I was still behaving like a, like a son and a daughter, not a husband. And I didn't, at that point, think, well, you know, these are my rights, and, you know, this is what we should do. Love for Nita made me change my attitudes and change my ways. Love does that, doesn't it? We change. And we're not meant to just get better as believers because that's the expected thing. We're meant to get improving as disciples because we are so enamored with the love of Jesus in our life and hanging out with him changes us. And this young lady, she was changing as she learned about the desire of the lover of her soul. And every chapter that we go through in this book seems to reveal a deeper revelation of just how loved she is. Throughout this book, there are numerous phrases that get repeated. Some of these are metaphors that feel like they're familiar from previous chapters. They're said numerous times. When God repeats something, in fact, let me just put it like this. When God says something once, he means it. But when he says something more than once, he's trying to to help us understand that we really need to apply this into our lives because our memories are pretty poor at times, aren't they? God speaks over us. 
you know, just six weeks ago when we started this series, and you remember discovering that freshness of you are loved. It's obvious you're loved. And then the week goes by and we forget, we forget, or we just revert back to living like that revelation hadn't happened. And God has to remind us again and say, you're loved. It's obvious you're loved. And think, oh yes, I remember that. And then we carry on with our life and we drift away from the revelation. And God keeps reminding us, but he wants it to happen in our spirit in such a deep way that of course it's obvious that this is true. And there's some phrases that keep getting repeated through this book, through this song. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. My most beautiful one. How beautiful you are. And if you look for those phrases, you see them popping up regularly. I think God's trying to say to us, his people, that he finds us beautiful. You're not ugly. You're not embarrassing. You're not bedraggled. You're not a mess. You're not vulnerable. You are beautiful. Turn to a stranger next to you and tell them, no, no, it's okay. You are beautiful. Stop saying that you're average. Stop saying that you're a failure. Stop saying that you're blinded. Stop saying that you're a mistake. Stop saying that you're a sinner. Stop saying that you're a reject. Stop it. Stop it. Stop saying that you're unfavored compared to other people. Stop it. Stop saying that you are a mess. Stop it. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. And when God looks at his church on the earth, do you know, we look and we think, gosh, I'm embarrassed about the state of my heart. I'm embarrassed about the state of the church. I see arguments taking place online. And I think, God, forgive us. And God looks in his mercy and he says, you are beautiful. Oh, what a tremendous grace that we enjoy. We are beautiful. And stop kicking against that. Some of you are holding back from serving the Lord wholeheartedly because you just can't come to terms with how beautiful you are. Deal with it. Surrender. Come before the cross of Jesus Christ. Lay your life before Him and get up from that place beautiful. Leave your mess of the cross and pick up the beauty and the life of Christ because He's the one that deposits that within us. Stop saying that you're average. Stop it, church. Stop it. We can't see the glory of God revealed in the southwest and beyond if we think we're average. We can't do it if you can't step into the prophetic if you think you're a mess. You can't step into destiny if you think that your life is unfavored. You can only do it when you know, I am beautiful. Come on, shout that after me, will you? I am beautiful. Oh, may the Spirit of God come and sink this word deeply into your soul today. I love these verses in chapter 4, verse 16. Quite contemporary, given the winds we've had over this weekend. You know, that invisible force that none of us can see. That's tearing roofs off 
buildings and laying trees that have stood for hundreds of years. And it says in Song of Songs 4.16, Awake, north wind. Rise up, south wind. Blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my lover. Taste its finest fruits. Let the wind of the Holy Spirit just blow his beauty and the scent of his presence all over you. Hallelujah. Come on, open your hands and say, Awaken, north winds. South winds, blow all over me. I pray that every lie that the enemy has deposited in the garden of our souls will be swept away, will be blown away. God, all those things that have cluttered our gardens, come, wind of God, and blow it away so that all is left is a revelation that we are beautiful. But before we continue to look at our intimacy with the lover of our souls, I want to take a quick detour to touch on one issue that I touched on very quickly last week. And it's only a short detour, but I promised we would do this, so I want to do this. And there's one question that's asked three times, or one statement that's given three times in this book. And it's a statement that's not given to um, to the young man or the young woman. It's a statement that's given to their friends. Let me read the three occurrences. First of all, Song of Songs 2, 7. It says, Promise me, O woman of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the idea, not to awaken love until the time is right. Again, in chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Promise me, O woman of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. And then again in chapter 8, verse 4, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. So there's something important about this. You get very quickly an understanding that if there's a right time for love to awaken, there's a wrong time. And there's an appeal. There's an appeal given that basically the ability to step into love at the wrong time is in our hands. Otherwise, the appeal wouldn't have been given to these women. Time, it, when it talks about the time is right, another maybe understanding of that is until it is ready. The Hebrew word for awaken means to rouse, to stir up, or to make something happen yourself. It's closely related to a word that means basically to be naked or bare or exposed or giving away your heart. Basically, the words that are being said here is, don't give your heart to another until you are sure that it's a love that's blossomed by the Lord and it's a right love. There's a God time for that. I want to encourage you to spend more time preparing your life and your heart than you are looking for the right person. God is preparing you. And God is preparing someone else for those who are longing for love on this earth. Bringing, he will bring the right person into your life. And I've seen over the years people try and crowbar their way into finding an answer to this loneliness and this difficulty. And I've seen people do it time and time again. And you can see the disaster approaching. Because they're trying to resolve something themselves. And I want to appeal to you, don't awaken love until it's ready. To do so is a bit like trying to extract a butterfly out of a chrysalis. 
a butterfly on its transition, its metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It, it's in that chrysalis stage. And it's actually the strength that it's gaining by pushing against the chrysalis. And eventually, when it's strong enough to fly, it's strong enough to break out of the chrysalis. If you try and take it out before then, it's not strong enough to fly. And it has no way of stretching its muscles. There's a time in our lives. And don't compare your time with someone else's time. I feel awkward about saying this. I was married at 19. You know, I've been blessed in my life and uh, in so many ways. And certainly with marriage and with my amazing wife, it has been an enormous blessing and privilege. And I walk and I journey with people who are in their 30s and 40s and 50s looking for love. And this is really tough to hear. But I want to say to you, young person, older person, people who've made mistakes, people who haven't made mistakes yet, I want to say to you, trust God. Don't, don't push your way through this. Don't give yourself to someone that is not right. Don't skirt around the, the importance of the dignity that God has placed on your life. Don't give your heart away to anybody. Make sure it's right before God. Don't compromise. You're far too beautiful to compromise. Okay, detour over. Let's go back to the young man and the young woman. Last week, we read that she had a dreamlike state where you remember he was knocking on the door of her bedroom and she was freshly bathed. She was tucked up in bed and she didn't want to get out of bed to open the door to her lover. And so she said, no. And then she had a second thought, then what am I doing? And she goes to the door, but he's gone. And I left you with that cliffhanger last week. Where is Jesus? Where is my lover? In her request to some friends to help her locate where her lover was, they asked her a question, and we did look at this last week. The question they asked is, in your pursuit of trying to find your lover, what makes him so special? And we saw that beautiful, eloquent answer that she gave. It wasn't just, well, he's the best. Or it wasn't just, well, he's great. Like, she really went into detail. She really had understood the nuances about his life and about his character and about his physique. She d demonstrated an answer that thought she's thought about this. She replied with great detail and great eloquence. Often... Our love is coached in this world to be an emotional thing, a feeling. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotions. God made them, you know that? So when people say, well, that worship was just emotional, I know what they're saying, because it should be more than emotional, but also at the same time, if it's real to us, then we're allowed to display emotion. You know, I don't go to football games, and then when a team score a goal, everybody cheers, and we say, no, it's just emotion. <laughs> of course it is. But it's emotion based on the fact that we just watched our team score. So, you know, if, if, we, if you find us a little bit demonstrative in our worship and a bit emotional, you're right. But it's not froth and bubble. There's depth to it. But the problem can be when we become intoxicated with the surface, the emotional overflow, and we forget the depth. And our emotions and our feelings can be our friends, but they also can be our enemies. 
And we have to be aware of that. And she didn't say, when they asked her, why is he so special? She didn't say, oh, I just love him. I just love him. I feel so warm when I'm with him. Why do you love Jesus? Well, I just, he just, it gives me goosebumps. I just feel his presence and he just feels so peaceful. Of course, that's wonderful. But it, it's supposed to be deeper than that. And she answered with her understanding. Here she was feeling like, you know, regret that she'd missed the opportunity to open the door. Um, it said that she'd been beaten up in her dream. So displaying this emotional fragility that she was feeling. She was in a quite a low place. And yet, when asked what makes him so special, she answered with her understanding, not with her feelings. Learn to love with your understanding and not just your feelings. This could change your life. Because there will be days when you feel close to him. And there will be days when you feel like he's absent. But our love is not based on how we feel. It's based on understanding that he desires us and we desire him. And there's a fickleness about our culture and our world today. Do you know, I think many married couples, young married couples, they buy into Hollywood's version of love and romance. And if you've been married probably more than a couple of years, you know that it's impossible to sustain perpetual 365 days a year, seven days a week, a perpetual feeling of romance. It just is impossible. And people who join the relationship feel intoxicated by that sense of emotion and romance, and there's nothing wrong with that. Come on, guys, be romantic. Come on, ladies, be romantic. There's nothing wrong with that. But our love is meant to be so much deeper. And what happens is that when the romance feels like it lifts, people begin to think, it's not the same as it was. We've lost our love. And people quit. I've seen people do that with God. Because it's all new when you come to God. Oh, he has liberated me. He has set me free. He has told me I'm no longer dark. I'm beautiful. And it's all wonderful and new. But after a while, it becomes familiar. We forget just how amazing a transformation has taken place in our life. We know it to be true, but we feel maybe like it's a bit like Groundhog Day. There will be days you'll feel close, and there'll be days you'll seem that you can't find him. But when she's giving her eloquent response of her understanding, it then dawns on her, I know where he is. In chapter 6, verse 2 to 3, it says this, My lover has gone down to his garden, to his spice beds, to browse in the gardens and gather the lilies. I am my lover's and my lover is mine. And he browses among the lilies. Now, 
previously, some of the references to gardens have been references of sexual intimacy. But that's not what this is. He probably is in a garden. And it's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful place. You remember, she was probably feeling slightly responsible and guilty for not answering the door to Jesus and feeling like, oh no, have I blown this? Have I blown this? And she might have had visions of him being in a room, pacing the corridors, going, I can't believe she rejected me again. I can't believe she pushed me away. And he wasn't there. He was in the garden picking flowers for her. He was still loving her. He was choosing expressions of his love for her again. You know, we have an impression of God who is constantly in a slightly bad mood. And yet we see the prodigal returning from blowing everything in his life and his father is watching from a distance and longing for his son to return. And Jesus, a lover of our soul, is in the garden picking flowers. Because he loves us because... You are beautiful. It's obvious that you're loved. You know, when you're feeling vulnerable, when you're feeling lost, when you're feeling distant, your lover's not mad at you. He's walking among the garden, filled with life and love. You remember, she came to this realization as she answered the question, why is he so special? And she didn't answer with her emotion, she answered with her understanding. Philippians 4 verse 8 picks on a similar theme. Go all the way to the New Testament. And it says this, fix your thoughts on that which is true, that which is honorable, that which is right, that which is pure, that which is lovely and admirable. Think about such things that are excellent and worthy of praise. In other words, let the understanding of your mind Go to the good place. Go to the garden. The good garden. This is why praise and worship is so powerful. It's not powerful if you're just singing songs. It's not powerful if you're just lifting hands. But it's powerful if your mind and your heart are engaged in understanding that no matter how distant God feels from you, no matter how rubbish you feel about yourself, that you stand there, arms open wide, heart set on the Lord, knowing that he says you are beautiful, knowing that he loves you, and you walk towards him by thinking upon these good things. You begin to put your understanding into use, as you begin to answer that question, what makes your lover so special? As you fix your thoughts on what is good, true, honorable, right, just, pure, lovely, excellent, and worthy of praise, in doing so, you walk to where he is. You know, some of you feel so rejected, so beaten up, so lost in failure that you're living in that locked away bedroom thinking I've blown it, I've blown it, I've blown it. Get up out of your jolly room and go to the garden and stop living in a cave and start going towards a place of love. You'll find him walking among the lilies. If we go to the Psalm, Psalm 47, 7 says, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Thank God for feelings and emotion, but praise him with understanding. Do you, before you come to church on a Sunday, 
Or before you wake, or engage in any day, do you think of what it is that is so special about God? You should make lists. You should think about that. If someone said to you, could you come to the front and give five reasons why God is so amazing? Could you give five reasons? If you can't, that's your homework this week. Because we should be able to. Because in understanding, we walk towards where he is. Listen, don't go to the cave of rejection, the cave of depression, or the cave of disappointment. Go to the garden of love. Now, all relationships have cycles. Cycles where they go through periods of closeness, periods of seeming distance, and then closeness again. We've seen this pattern numerous times in the chapters we've explored this far. And each time, the emphasis on the absence and the coming together is that there's desire building. There's desire growing for one another. And Jesus, the lover of our soul, is coaching that out of us. I've experienced times in my life where there have been significant periods of closeness to the Lord. I've, I've experienced times where it feels like there's like a revival happening in me. Where I just feel like my emotions are consumed with just the closeness and the goodness and the amazing things about the Lord. I've experienced times when it feels like the north and the south winds are blowing all over the garden of my life. We've experienced those times here in the church as well. I remember that period of time about four years ago on Pentecost Sunday when we had the disappointment of not going onto the street like we hoped and we came here. We had no plan. We had nothing prepared because we were due to be in open air. But the Spirit of God had a plan that morning. And you remember it felt like an outbreak of God's presence. A good friend of mine came and spoke a few weeks later, Steve Apple, and he walked in while the band were rehearsing and he said, what is going on here? There was a presence of God. Do you know, during that season, I was getting up 3.30 on a Sunday morning just to spend hours with the Lord before we came to church. And it was just, it wasn't a burden. It was just an ease and a delight. And I, my prayer at those times is, God, may that last forever. But it doesn't seem to. And you scratch your head and think, what have we done that's wrong? Have we missed something? Have I stopped doing something I should be doing? And the history of church has these moments. Growing up in Wales, the 1904 revival. It's a 1904, 1906, I can't remember. I wasn't alive. But it was a long time ago. And there was this revival that swept through South Wales. It transformed communities. But if you read the history of it, it seemed to go as quick as it came. And there have been times in church history when... The Lord, the winds have blown and the garden of the church and it's been amazing. And then it feels like it just stops. Have we missed something? Had she missed something every time she said, where's my lover gone? There he is. And then suddenly that sense of his joy-filled presence doesn't seem to be there in the same way. Our worship, our presence-soaked worship gets replaced by singing. Our expectations and faith are replaced just by routines. Sometimes it takes a while to realize even that he's no longer as close as he was. But, and I put this in, I believe 
that this is not a negative statement to put in. I believe this is a part of you and I understanding the way God works in our hearts. That he is drawing out desire in us. Because if that season happened, because God loves us, he loves hanging out with us, he wants to be really close to his church. But if it's just continuous sense of like abundance and blessing and lost in wonder, love and praise, if that's just the existence that happens all the time, we'll probably just take it for granted. We'll probably stop seeking him. But sadly, some fall away at such times. Because they think, well, it's not really cutting it for me any longer. And instead of seeking, they start squeaking. (laughs) I want to encourage you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't squeak first the things of this world. (laughs) Seek him. Even in those times when he doesn't feel close, seek him. Because he's teaching you and I something. He is drawing something out. Something is happening in our hearts as we allow our understanding to kick in beyond our feelings. This cycle happens in all relationships. Do you know the mark of a good relationship is not how you are with each other when things are going well, but it's how you search for each other when things feel distant. That's what makes a good marriage. It's how you search out each other when it feels like there's a disconnect. How you work towards that. I know of a minister once that met with a couple who were due to get married. And he said to them a a series of questions. And one of the questions he said was, have you ever argued? And they said, no, we've never argued. No, no, we've never had a crossword. And he closed his book and said, I'm not going to marry you. (laughs) What do you mean? We just said we're a model couple. We've never argued. He said, if you've never learned to make up, you're not ready for marriage. You know, in our lives, it's often, it's, it's easy to follow Jesus in revival. It's easy to follow Jesus when it just feels like you walk into a room and the atmosphere is filled with the presence of God. It's easy to get out of bed in the morning when the Holy Spirit is banging on the door of your heart and saying, Good morning. <laughs> but when it feels like he's absent, it's jolly hard. Come on, when you walk into a church service and... I get frustrated with these things. Like sometimes I want to post-mortem and say, why was it so naff today? It was amazing last week. Why is it so naff today? Begin to look at all the things we might have done wrong, the things we could have done different. But sometimes God just steps away because he's seeing, will there be a seeker or a squeaker? Come on, Mark. That's a word. Hallelujah. And I believe God is cultivating us as his people to be seekers. The remaining chapters of this book, the remaining chapters of this beautiful song, as I mentioned earlier, there are lots of repeated cycles, repeated phrases, and I'm not going to go into depth in the last few chapters that I have in the previous because we're going to conclude this series, but this cycle is not just going around in circles. Sometimes it feels like we just go around in circles. Oh God, I've been here before. I've been in this cycle of repentance. I've been in this place before. But it's not the same thing. You're not in the same place. 
In a similar way to the four seasons of the year, they have predictable characteristics. We know that the winter is going to be colder than the summer. We know the summer is going to be wet. We know, you know, there are, there are some predictable things that we understand about the seasons. But even though there are predictable things, there are different things. Every season is unique. Every winter is winter, but every winter is unique. And every time we have a repeated cycle and pattern in our life, it's familiar and it's unique. And among some of these repeated phrases and metaphors, there are new metaphors added in, slipped into the back pocket of something that's familiar. There's something unique God is looking to say to you, even in a familiar season. Let's look at Song of Songs 7, verse 13. It says these words. There the mandrakes give off their fragrance. It's a plant of love and then it says, and the finest fruits are at our door. And look at this, new delights as well as old, which I have saved for my lover. New delights as well as old. I thank God for everything he's done in my life, and I thank God every time he repeats that in me. You know, I never tire of my wife's kisses. I never tire of people saying nice things and doing nice things, doesn't matter how familiar it is. But the moment that those nice things are memories rather than experiences, you need to have them fresh in your life again. But there's new. May there be new delights in your life as well as familiar. And we're racing on because we're going to conclude this. And in Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 7, it says these words, Many waters cannot quench love nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Just, do you think you can buy this? Do you really think that if you gather every coin and bit of gold and diamonds that there is in the world, and you owned all of them, do you really think the owner of Amazon or Elon Musk, do you really think that they could turn to God and say, we want to buy your love with all of our riches? God, laugh. Don't you realize how priceless this is? And yet, here we are. You're beautiful. It's obvious. And waters cannot quench it. Don't let love go when the tides and when the currents of our challenges and our circumstance begin to sweep us. Don't let go of love. When you feel like your life is being carried by a difficulty, and there are times in our life when it feels like the flow of our circumstances take us on a route that we feel out of control. And you know what happens? The moment you're in a water and you feel out of control, it's so easy to panic. And when you panic, your arms begin to flail around. But I want to say that don't flail around with your hands. Hold on to love. Because it's your life jacket. It's your, it's your flotation device. It's the thing that you need more than anything else. And as long as you're holding that, you're safe. Yeah. When we splash around, we let go of the very thing that is trying to keep us above water. Go back a few hundred years. In 1750, there was a very famous preacher called Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had a very difficult experience happen where his church congregation 
took a vote as to whether he should remain as their minister or not. Let me tell you how this vote went. 230 people voted that he should leave, and 23 voted that he should stay. You can imagine the pain of that, can't you? But an eyewitness to this said these words, and I quote, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. He appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good overbalancing all imaginable ills of life. Those who opposed him were astonished by his countenance and by his calmness and by the way that he wasn't thrown off balance by this horrible event. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. Stop fighting the currents and embrace the love. It's your life-saving float. Let me take you through to the New Testament, to Romans 8, familiar scriptures. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or are destitute or in danger or threatened with life? For as the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced I am absolutely convinced for you, church. I'm convinced in God's word for my life and for your life. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's obvious how much you love, church. Don't let that go. Embrace His love tighter than anything else you hold in your life. If there's anything in your life that requires you to let go of his love, let go of that other thing and keep holding on. Let desire grow for more of him. In the seasons and the cycles of our life, desire him above all else. When he doesn't seem close, let your understanding lead you to the garden of love. And as we come to the end of this song and conclude this series... I want to take you to the very last verse of this song. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. The young man says, Oh, my darling, lingering in the gardens, your companions are fortunate to hear your voice. Let me hear it too. Let him hear your voice. No matter how ineloquent you feel, no matter how you compare your prayer capabilities compared to others, let him hear your voice. 
He longs to hear your voice. Don't blend into the crowd. Let him hear your voice. And the final verse, the young woman replies, come away, my love. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Come away. You know, this come away, it's an eternal love that we're invited into. Try to get some days and some times in your life where, and rhythms in your day where you can come away with the Lord. Jesus regularly retreated from the things of this world in order to know time alone with the Lord. But this is an eternal love. A friend was telling me a few years ago of a couple, a beautiful Jesus-loving couple that had been married for many, many years. I think they've been married for over 70 years. And it came to that part of her life where she was about to leave this world and to go to her eternal reward. And she's laying in the bed in her home and her husband is on a chair by her side holding her hands. And they sing hymns together. And there they are in these final moments. Then sings my soul. My Savior, God, to thee, how great thou art. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And they just sing these hymns. And then there's one final breath. One minute she's singing about glory. And the next minute, she's experiencing it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither life nor death. Nothing in all creation can separate us. I pray that you and I will enter into eternity not as strangers, not as people who have been merely forgiven and loved but I pray that we will enter eternity as lovers who know what it is to regularly say come away my love let's stand together Follow this series. I don't know how you could have followed it without having a hunger and a desire growing in your heart for more intimacy with the Lord. I don't know how you could have done that. Even if you have, though, God's grace and mercy is just beautiful. He's not angry with you. He's in the fields picking flowers of love. And he longs to hear your voice. Come, blow on us winds of God. I pray, God, that this series will continue to bear life in our hearts. God, may we be a church that's not just busy and active and redemptive for our communities and a vessel of transformation, but may we be a community of lovers of God. May our discipleship not be some sort of self-help group where we're trying to live better lives to have a better testimony. 
And Lord, may we be changed by your love. And Lord, in seasons of closeness and seasons of distance, I thank you that you're never really absent. You're always with us. But Lord, I pray that whatever season we're in, that we would be seekers and not squeakers. If at the end of this series, your heart is, God, I want to grow closer to you. I'm not going to invite you forward, but why don't you just lift your hands in his presence and say, Lord, I want my life to be one that continually draws close to you. Come, winds of God, breathe upon these gardens.